0: Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, president of Seamless Docs Federal, and this is the FedScoop
1: Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the
0: government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk.
1: All right, Dan, we are back. And um, a lot seems to happen in between when we tape. Um, we have a great guest today, Heather Higginbottom, who is just recently departed the State Department as the Deputy Secretary. And we invited Heather on for a variety of different reasons. But one of the things that's been happening since we last were together was there's been issues around federal employees disagreeing with the direction that the new administration wants to take. I think there's two very high-profile examples of that. One is the Sally Yates firing, and two is the State Department uh, using the dissent channel to to express their concerns, the civil servants, about um, the Trump administration's immigration EO. And so what I thought we'd do today is delve into this, this topic. And as you and I have talked about, this podcast is is nonpartisan, is nonpolitical. The thought process being that government employees don't have the luxury of being on the fringes of politics. instead, their responsibility as civil servants is to find that right middle ground so that they're effectively carrying out the mission for their institutions, even in the face of politics and so what we could talk about with Heather today is how do federal employees what are the options that they have to to fairly appropriately and effectively express positions that may run counter to a given administration.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think to some extent the the issues that you described are really examples of the extreme, you know, when when people run up, when the civil servant runs up against a, a decision that crosses that bright line for them or, or, or challenges, as you'd say, their North Star. And I think in that sense, by looking at that that extreme case and looking at the the, what's available for folks to speak up in that case, I think it's useful for us to have that conversation for people to understand what kind of tools are available. Before we do that, though, I don't, I don't think you dwelled on how awesome it is that we have Heather here <laughs> yeah, enough.
1: Please dwell.
0: I, I think, I mean, first of all, you know, Deputy Secretary of State, how cool is that? Um, also, former Deputy Director of OMB,
1: Right at the same time, I was acting deputy director on the management side, so had the honor and privilege of working side by side with Heather, which was great.
0: And we maintain our obsessive uh, focus on OMB here on the program. Which yes, is, we might
1: want to change the yeah. name of the podcast. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> we may yeah. have to, or you know, uh,
0: people start turning it off when they realize that. But <laughs> but also a tremendous um, tremendous career on the Hill too. So I think. Heather brings a lot of perspective on this, but what would be great to hear from you, Heather, is a little bit about you know, the background of the Descent Channel and, and this most recent use of it.
2: Sure. Well, first, I'm really thrilled to be here on the best-named podcast uh, that I've ever heard of. Yes! Sorry. And um, to be with you guys, uh, I'm a huge fan uh, fan of both of yours, so this is a great opportunity. Um, and the Descent Channel is really interesting. Um, I learned about it at the State Department when I was there. I didn't know about it. Uh, it was created in the Vietnam era. And it was an opportunity for the Foreign Service and for the civil service professionals to uh, ensure their perspective on the policy was heard directly by the secretary or by the front office of the secretary. Um, And it's a private channel. It's something that um, is not used very frequently but is respected. Um, as a way for the professionals who are carrying out policy and who um, oftentimes are on the ground or have particular perspectives to ensure that their, um, their voices can be heard and registered and to do it in, in a constructive way. You know, the State Department is incredibly hierarchical, um, as are many federal agencies, but I think maybe state even more so. And so it's, it's really notable that this uh, channel was created for people at all levels, whether they're foreign service or civil service, um, to disagree with a policy and make sure that either the secretary or one of his or her key staff members was um, responding and listening to those voices, So I think it's really—it's—it's it's, really—it's really noteworthy. So, is it—is it
1: a type of thing that anyone can do? It almost like a suggestion box framework, or is there a, a process by which you have to? hit some threshold and get some signatures or get
2: sign-off? Oh, I mean, I think most of the—I don't have the the data, but in, anecdotally, I mean, most of the dissent cables uh, are just individuals, um, just a person with a particular perspective, noting um, their observation, uh, providing some additional information that maybe he or she thought weren't available to the secretary or that would influence their thinking. Um it's not the case that um, there haven't been uh, cables with lots of signatories, but nothing like we've seen recently, certainly. Um, and really, it's just this kind of private way to express a view and to ensure it's registered and responded to. And so often that th- those are solitary voices.
1: You said private a couple of times. Is it anonymous or... You're signing up, and does your supervisor know
2: you've done it? It's a—it's not anonymous. You sign your name to it, and that's a big deal. I mean, I think this is true probably in any agency, but it's at the State Department. Um, you know, the Foreign Service sign up; they have decades-long careers before they can reach kind of the. The, um, the highest rungs, either a chief of mission, an ambassador, or, or an assistant secretary, or even higher. Um, and to do that, you're reviewed every year. Those, those rankings and reviews are, are really the roadmap to your success. So you're taking a risk if you sign on to something that, that maybe is at odds. Um, and so, culturally, this has been a, a respected channel, um, one that enables people to make, those, um, make their views known, but also one that I think diplomats weigh risks about. Um, because they are signing their name up. And, you know, even though they're not going to be sort of – they've worked hard at the State Department to ensure there's no retribution um, or any actions taken. But, you know, you, you never – you can't quantify sometimes what the impact might be. So there is some risk in that.
0: So you're not going to complain about the heat in the embassy in Zagreb on this? We, on we the have
2: channel. those opportunities as right. well. But
0: <laughs>
1: That's more in the suggestion
0: box. That, that and right. those right.
2: can be anonymous. Right.
0: <laughs> but do you think that this idea of a dissent channel – a, do you think it's a it's a good idea? B, you know, alternatively, is it representative of perhaps a, a broken communications process that you need to formally build this channel?
2: Well, I think I don't think it. I, I don't think the communications process is broken. Um, but in an organization that is as complex as, say, the State Department, where you have Um, a hierarchy uh, that starts, you know, really uh, at the embassy on the ground, people who really are are out there um, to know what's happening and to have a particular perspective. And then it's filtered back to Washington through a bureau and an assistant secretary and up through. And I think um, that's not broken. That's a process. And it has to have some formality and some rigor to it. And, And you're not always gonna have consensus on a policy or a decision. You know, people are gonna disagree and they'll go with it. So it's really the exceptional case when someone feels that they have a perspective that's either been ignored or that needs to be heard directly by the secretary's staff. So I don't think it's an indication of anything being broken, but of an extraordinary moment. And when we look at some of the examples we, we we're talking that Danny mentioned and that we'll, we'll be talking about, um, they're extraordinary situations: the war in Syria, the executive order regulating travel to the United States. And I think those are the moments when people people say, you know, we want to be sure our voices are heard.
1: Does this? Do you and and the secretary when you were there? Do you do you see all of them, or are they filtered up to you, based on you know kind of what what the secretary's staff office thinks is um, really critical? There, there's
2: a there's a process, and it's it's it's. Documented, and um, the Secretary's Office of Policy and Planning has responsibility for disseminating and responding to the dissent channel cables. So there's a group of individuals, um, the deputy secretaries, the undersecretaries, um, who will receive all copies of of dissent channel cables um, and then run a process to respond to it. And um, people understand that's what's going to happen and they know who it's going to go to. And it's not the case that every cable will be read by the secretary. Um, And there aren't that many of them, frankly. But it is the case that every cable will be responded to by his most immediate staff and by his senior uh, officials and deputies, or hers.
0: You were at State about four years, right? Mm -hmm. And so how many of these, roughly, do you think uh, you saw come across? Not
2: very many. I mean, I think probably I could count the number on one hand, you know, it's certainly fewer than 10. And, and you don't remember all of them because they're all not as, you know, they're, they're, they're not always about things that are, you know, huge issues of, of uh, national security policy, though they may be quite important in one element or another. But they're relatively infrequent.
0: And, and what would be the number of signatories on your average one? Before they... the, 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 the
2: larger, um, this, the second largest dissent uh, channel cable was about the Syria policy, and it had 51 signers. Uh, obviously, the executive order um, uh, regulating travel—that—that is the top—and it's around a thousand. So think about that. You know, kind if of it, a if it,
0: hockey stick. That's exactly right. There, and
2: right. I didn't—I can't think of another ch- cable I read in that channel that, that had more than one signature on it. So just the Syria and the travel ban. And and
1: this one was public or it was made public? Was it leaked? I don't I don't know the background. Because you, know, you mentioned that they're, they're typically private. Typically
2: they're private. And um, obviously the more people who sign on and, and are talking about it, the greater the chance or the likelihood that it would be made public. Um, and... But but the way it's conceived is that we have a constructive channel to disagree and to do it internally. So the intent is it is for it to stay private. And I think that actually strengthens um, uh, it as a, as a viable way to express um, a disagreement. Um, when you get to many more numbers, I think you're just, you know, you're facing a, a much more likely that it becomes public, but it's actually, I think, quite important that as it's tradition, it, that it stays kind of within the department. It's fascinating,
1: because first of all, I wasn't aware of this before, before, you said you weren't aware before you went to state, before I saw it in the news, I'd never heard of it. But it raises really interesting questions across government in terms of what paths or checks and balances, uh, if you will, are there for civil servants to to reflect on something where they see a problem or concern. And I was just thinking, I was just seeing on, on Twitter recently that Senator Grassley was tweeting a lot about whistleblower protections, which is his big, it has always been his big passionate issue. If you've ever gone up to meet with Senator Grassley, there's about a 99.9% chance, he's, no matter what topic you're going up there for, he will raise the whistleblower issue. And so I think he's looking at the start of an administration and probably getting a lot of questions like everyone else's about checks and balances that exist um, when you have a new administration where they might be bringing in people that haven't been, uh, don't have a familiarity with government before and don't necessarily have familiarity with those norms, what checks and balances are in place. Whistleblowers is, is another key one. And it sounds to me like with this dissent channel, you can feel somewhat comfortable signing it because I would imagine that whistleblower elements would kick in if if a supervisor got you in trouble, for example, for signing on to one of these.
2: Absolutely. And, and there is this tradition. Um, since this channel's been around for decades now. There's this tradition of respecting that this is an internal opportunity to express your perspective and that you're signing your name and that uh, we respect that process. And so... um, whistleblower kind of uh, protections and instincts are there, but it's also kind of a, tra- a tradition of saying, okay, this is something we've sanctioned. We set this up so that people could, right. I say we, I didn't do it, but that's when you when you are a leader in this department, you are endorsing this process. Um, and I thought it was interesting. I mean, I, I'm sure we're gonna get to the, more about the, the travel ban, but it was interesting when when Secretary Tillerson, the new Secretary of State, walked into the State Department and gave his his opening remarks Sort of acknowledge. There's there's dissent. We're going to work together. You know that's the right tone, I think, to have yeah. uh, when you're coming into an agency and you know there's some controversy because you are going to have to work through these things. You know, people. I are, thought
1: he might have listened to our earlier podcast. I, I think uh, a lot of
0: uh, <laughs> new uh, secretaries have been <laughs> where we had
1: this whole kind of message to incoming leaders about what tone to set up, mm-hmm. and in particular, we emphasized to be in listening mode mm-hmm. and to recognize that the civil servants that are there are there to serve you and can make you very successful. Um, and uh, my, my thought was that, that his opening statement struck the right tones and kind of calmed a lot of nerves yeah. across the organization. Yeah, I agree.
0: Yeah. More, more broadly, if you want to get anything done in terms of the administration, you're going to need to leverage those people there. That's and right. so uh, there was some commentary after the, you know, the dissent channel became public, the number of people signing on, and there was a statement that people who aren't on board should leave. I'm not sure you want a thousand incredibly talented foreign service people to leave.
2: That's right. And, and I mean, I, I found that comment um, from the White House Communications Director, Press Secretary, chilling, because um, that is exactly the opposite message that the channel was set up to um to give people of you know a voice to express themselves in this way and the message is supposed to be we hear you and you know with and the Syria policy Kerry met with the signers they weren't all in Washington some were spread out around the world um, but he got together got in a room with them and they talked through it and he saw that as a real opportunity he also came, Became a public uh, figure protesting a war he had fought in. Right. So you, I mean,
1: and you mentioned that this this dissent channel came about during the Vietnam and, yeah, War. Yeah, that's right. So, so but, I, there's this little bit of irony there because I always have this visual of of uh, Secretary Kerry uh, sitting in his— mm-hmm. I, I, in my mind he was in fatigues, he was, like yeah. in, in the Senate chamber mm-hmm. testifying. It's just, yep.
2: Yeah, and but you know, even though he, he didn't agree with the arguments laid out in that cable. He really respected the signers and relished the opportunity to sit down and talk and to explain his thinking and the president's and others and engage in that discussion. It was important to him. And that's the response you want to see, not a, well, you know, go take a hike, um, because you can't conduct our diplomacy and keep the country safe. if You don't have experienced diplomats around the world doing that work. There's about, you know, there's, there's you know, some, some percentage of them signing onto that cable. You can't tell them to take a hike. So um, I, I, I was heartened by Secretary Tillerson's response uh, in his first days.
0: So uh, when we come back, let's talk a little bit about that specific um, EO and, and how it generated the dissent. And the, I think we should pull the string a little more about this idea of dissent channel versus whistleblower versus inspector general or the other approaches or, or tools that people have at their disposal to, to raise concerns. GovActually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop radio network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop.
1: GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact.
0: And Seamless Docs, the fastest, easiest way to move all your administrative data collection processes to the cloud. Seamless Docs helps make government beautiful. We've had a great conversation about the dissent channel, and I think it'd be great for us to take that conversation, draw it out a little bit more, and ask our and, and ask a little bit about um, well the specifics of the issue that generated this most recent dissent cable, as well as what are the tools available to civil servants to raise concern about the direction of their agencies.
1: Well, even even more broad than that, and I think I think any time there's a change in administration there's people out there that are going to have reservations concerns about the incoming administration like the the guy or the gal they didn't vote for is now in office and they're concerned um, i can remember back in 2009 um, talking to people um, that were uh, that were conservative that were disappointed in the outcome of the of the mccain obama election and i remember talking to them about there are checks and balances that exist that makes sure that, that the process moves forward with, with a lot of different input. It's not uh, an autocracy, it's, it it works that way. And I think that's happening now. I think a lot of people are raising questions around the power of these checks and balances, whether it's the, the, the role of the oversight entities, and it's really interesting right now because you have a Republican-controlled Congress, a Republican in the White House, we haven't had that situation of a, of a same party in, in quite some time. So we're all just used to a Democrat in the White House, Republican-controlled Congress, and a lot of very, very tough oversight from the Hill. Right. And so I think there's a lot of questions right now. What does oversight, congressional oversight, look like in a world in which same party for president and Congress? Um, and I think there's a real test coming up. And I think the what's going on in these town hall meetings where uh, people are coming to them and 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 yelling up to the stage to to Republicans like, hey, you know, I, we expect you to oversee the Trump administration. I think that's starting to kind of bubble up these kind of questions and concerns about how oversight's going to work in this context.
0: Yeah, and I've seen already some of the reaction to that is to say, well, those are just activists. Those are, to to some extent, it, the same response as this Heisman-like response of saying, look, if you're not on board, you know. Just, just get out of the way.
1: Yeah. And in fairness, like, I remember going to the IRS and and uh, walking into the building and there being protests, you know. Uh, um, I can't remember if it was Tea Party protests or something like that. But I think, you know, some of this stuff comes full circle in terms of of people organizing when there is a party in power that they're not uh, they're not thrilled with the the direction they're taking, but I think maybe it's a it's a good question for Heather, who's also had perspectives on this in terms of checks and balances, and you know where do you see um, things going in the in the upcoming administration with regarding checks and balances? And then we can circle back and kind of tease that out in the context of the immigration deal.
2: No, I think that it, it is a unique time, just in terms of the control of the White House and Congress, um, and I think if we're gonna really be serious about checks and balances. We do need people uh, engaged in the political process, whether it's at town hall meetings, whether it's paying paying attention to these issues, because, um, you know, you want to have really good oversight. You want to have um, people sort of taking their responsibilities seriously, but they got to be held accountable. And every two years or six years, depending on their election cycle, isn't necessarily the only way to do that. And so, when you have one party controlling Congress and the same party in the White House, I think you really do need to think about: okay, you know, are the checks and balances also comprised of people, citizens? You know, not just elected yes. officials, not just the branches of government. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. And I think that's important. Um, when I think about the transition, um, and uh, what has happened over the last three and a half weeks or so, um, and as it relates to the State Department, you know, one of, I was struck by the fact as my tenure at State was coming to an end, that people who had been at the Department for a long time in the Foreign Service and the Civil Service were quite sanguine about it. We're used to transitions. We do this every four or eight years. We've seen it before. Foreign policy is a little bit different. You know, it tends not to be ups and downs of the political process. It's the United States. It's our role in the world. It's not It's not subject to politics. You don't talk about politics at the National Security Council table, right? You're stepped removed from that. I think what's been different here um, and something that's so important in government in the, and really how it runs is process, right? And what we saw with this executive order was the normal process wasn't followed, and I think what not just the policy itself, which a lot of people at the State Department had a problem with and a lot of people around the country, but the fact that the experts who know these programs and they know you know, the, the visa program and who comes in and refugee admissions and so forth weren't a part of that process is perhaps what contributed in some way to a very high number of people signing on. And I think that reinforces the importance of having the dissent channel as a check and balance. I
1: think that's a great point. Like in an earlier podcast, the one I think it's called like the transition pep talk or something like that. Dan and I were talking about the fact that, you know, it's it, it's it's tough when when the situation arises where someone comes in and wants to take things 180 degrees from where you're where you were heading. So, for example. HHS, those civil servants have been driving for the last eight years and figuring out how to implement the Affordable Care Act as, as, as effectively as they can. You know, it's, you know, they might not have had a say in the law, but the law is the law, and now they have to carry out effectively. And now maybe there's a possibility that they are completely changing and restructuring and reshuffling, and, that, and that's hard. The question then becomes, and this is the one that Dan and I pose, though, you can make the case— that you're still consistent with the north star of the agency mission if you're still focused on healthcare outcomes for citizens you might have a different approach so a civil servant has to just grapple with the fact that okay as long as i believe that my leaders are still consistent are consistent with that mission they want to improve healthcare for americans then i think the civil servant can get behind the retooling and the restructuring Okay. The question then becomes: If you believe that the policy direction that that the organ that the new administration is taking is counter to that North Star, and in this case, if or in any hypothetical case, I'm picturing like. Um, uh, some new politicals coming in, locking themselves in a conference room, talking, strategizing, not involving the civil servants, not getting their input, coming out and then announcing this major policy, which is, you know, could cause more people to have that sense that, you know what, this isn't even an implementation issue. This is a North Star issue. And I think maybe if if what you were saying, that process was followed and input and people were, yes, I see what you're trying to do from a policy. You want to protect America. There's different ways to do it. There's different trade-offs. There's still a chance that some people might look at that policy and say, nope, not consistent with North Star. I think a higher likelihood that it would have been if that process was followed. And
2: I think, you know, the, the uh, objective, the ostensible objective, according to the president of the, of the executive order, was to keep America safe, keep, et cetera. Right. The, the professionals at the State Department share the goal of keeping America safe. Right. Like that is That's the part North of Star. their mission. Right. Yeah. Right? That's the North Star. Yeah. And and they view many of them, and as it's articulated in the in the cable, see this potentially making us less safe. Um, for lots of different reasons. You know, ISIS is already they call it the Blessed um, Doctrine or something, yeah, right? The, the Blessed Executive Order. Yeah, Blessed yeah. Executive Order. Right. It's the first time an executive order has <laughs> has received that honorific. But um they see it as making us less safe. And they have real experience, decades of experience on the ground, in the region experience. They know these countries, they know these people, the refugee program itself. um, You know, only 1% of the world's refugees are resettled in third countries, 1%. The United States of America prioritizes the most vulnerable refugees, women and children, people who are sick, people who have been persecuted. It's not single men of fighting age, right? So if you're sitting at the State Department and you see this order come out and you've had no input into it, and you share the goal of keeping America safe, and you can't even say, I share your goal, but let's look at the facts and let's work this through and let me tell you how to implement it and what the object, then I think you come away and say, I have to register my concern, not with this president or whatever, but because I don't think this will keep us safe, right? Like that's a really important part of the dialogue. I think we've hit on
1: one of the hardest examples I can think of in memory in terms of this, this challenge of the civil servants Trying to carry forward that agency mission, but if they fundamentally disagree that the policy that was enacted will do so, how do, how do you deal with that? And I think, as you said, it gets exacerbated if there isn't that communication. Because I picture myself sitting across from, um, you know, when I went from uh, President Clinton to President Bush, in terms, I can, I remember sitting across from extraordinarily talented and smart. Uh, people from the Bush administration articulating the basis for certain policies, and you can you can buy in as you're as you're having that that debate, as you, as you're switching your your thought process. Oh, we used to run education policy this way. <laughs> now we're running education policy that way. This is different for me, but let me talk to these people and see what they're thinking. And then all of a sudden, what's revealed is a very thoughtful mm-hmm. set of but, thoughts.
0: But does that does that thoughtful considered process driven approach comport with the 100 days mentality that i need to demonstrate that i've come in and i've turned it around 180 degrees i mean i think to some extent what we see is this tyranny of you know instant news cycles and mm-hmm. the need to throw some red meat down on the table and say see i'm a completely different person than the person who came before me
1: yeah that's a great point that's really that that creates this perfect storm the the time frame cuz how am i supposed to Act quick and do what you just said, Dan, if I'm inviting every lawyer in the State Department in to to talk about it. Look,
2: there's a tension there. I I would argue that you don't need as many things in the first couple of weeks as maybe we just, you know— as we saw to to, to demonstrate that you are living up to what you commit to doing in a campaign or that you're going to change things and there's different ways of doing it. You can launch, you need some quick wins. You need to do some things quickly and demonstrate that progress. And then you start a process, you get the right people on, but I mean, there's lots of different ways to do it. So yes, we are completely, I think, beholden to, um, needing to feed the news cycle,
0: but didn't they didn't they suss out the fact that there are now a thousand people who are going to resist their efforts to turn the State Department
2: around on a dime? No, no, those people are going to have to just take a hike. Apparently, yeah. No, I mean, I think that that's. Um, I just I think that also reflects not having people right around you who are steeped in government. You know, there's this sense of we the, the the we're going to do things differently. We're not the insiders, right? Um, there's real value. You, you talked about your earlier podcast and talking about how important it is to listen to the to the career folks. I mean, anybody who walks into an agency as a political appointee is not going to be successful if they don't sit down and listen to the people who are going to make them successful, and right? It's,
0: it's a matter of trust. Do you, mm-hmm. do you think that um, the trust once lost is irretrievable? It sounds like Secretary Tillerson, um, who has experience running Big, vast, complicated—you know, m- multi-functional operations. He understands that. He understands that if you're going to motivate several hundred thousand people, you've got to do it based on trust and based on listening, and then direction—maybe clear direction. Ultimately, you know, he'll be in charge. But do you think then? Um, do you think? Do you think it's uh, it's going to be possible for the secretary to win back the trust
1: now?
2: I, I do. I think that the department. Um, I think the State Department will welcome someone who's listening and responding and engaging. I think the question will be um, whether whether any of the secretaries, frankly, will then have influence uh, with the White House going forward. And that's, I think, a test in, it was certainly an issue in our administration, right? There's a lot of power is concentrated in the White House, and you have to manage relationships with agencies and with the individual secretaries themselves and the cabinet. So I I don't think that's particular just in this scenario. But um, I think that the professionals at the State Department, they're really pleased they have a confirmed secretary who's listening and reaching out. Um, But, you know, we'll have to see sort of how that progresses and and whether that can be really integrated into the policy apparatus.
1: See, I'm I'm an eternal glasses half full optimist. And I'd like to look at mistakes as as opportunities for for learning and so um or n- not even mistakes like different approaches and what did we learn from that so whether it was the how we handled the the las vegas conference scandal and how that all unfolded in terms of immediate personnel actions all the way through to all the guidance that was issued we can learn a lot from that and, and tell her that differently. I think about the healthcare.gov launch and all the things that went wrong at the beginning and then all the things that started to go right after. Like, What what, what can we, we learn from that? And I was thinking about the, the Sally Yates situation. And look, I don't know whether she did exactly what she should have done in the moment, whether it was the exact right approach versus other approaches, but... I have this sense that we're going to learn. History will learn from that, and a future Attorney General or Acting Attorney General will have that data point now. And I hope that 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 this administration kind of sees the power of listening, the importance of the civil servants, and and sees what can happen if the process breaks down and and learn from that. I hope. I mean, maybe it'll be you know the next administration that that learns from these early issues that we're seeing, I, I have optimism that people like Secretary Tillerson and others will learn from this and, and engage differently going forward.
2: You know, I was thinking about um, President Obama visited all the federal agencies um, at various points over his tenure um, in the first term, and I think it's really important. It's it, Working in the White House, working in the West Wing, it's a super small place. It feels small. Every single thing you see on the news or in the newspaper, you're responsible for in some way, shape or form. That's how it feels. Um, you're working all the time. You're not balancing your life terribly well. Um, and, and you don't get out very much. Right. And, and I think it was important for President Obama to go to various agencies and see all of the people powering the government. Now, he had a, a very fundamental belief in the importance of government in it functioning well and in, in its role in improving people's lives um, but i think there's something to sort of getting out and seeing oh you've got this army literally an army yeah. of people out there who who can help achieve objectives but you got to listen to them and, I, and physically getting out is important
1: i used to say i used to say use the phrase the world is flat um, when you're in the EOP, Executive Office of the President, even at OMB. When I got to the IRS, it was really eye-opening to understand kind of the, the perspective of the agency. I'm sure you saw the same thing totally. going from OMB to state. And then, even when I went from, you know, being at IRS headquarters at 1111 Constitution, then I went out to the regions and visited the regions, and I said, oh, the world was flat from 1111 Constitution. Totally. Like, I needed – so there, there is – and it makes you – A better manager and Dan and I have talked about this like your legacy as a as a president um, as a secretary or a head of an agency is in part uh, you know did you cut the deficit did you meet this these, these various objectives did you did you create jobs obviously that's a critically important part but also, it's the impact you leave on the government agencies that you lead. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think it would be a mistake to ignore that part of your portfolio and your responsibility. And, I, again, I think there are very smart, talented people like uh, Secretary Mattis, Secretary Tillerson, Secretary Kelly, others that are coming in that I think will uh, – Will reflect on that and 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 be very attentive and listening to their to their employees. I'm, at least, again, the eternal optimist.
2: I mean, if you yeah, we'll, so we'll we'll do your eternal optimism on the um, dissent uh, channel cable that you know got about a thousand people signing on. And I mean, I see that as a red big red flag waving, saying, "Hey, listen to us. We have something really important to say, and it's not about us." it's about the security of this country which is your goal too right and so if we're going to look at that in a very optimistic way it's it's okay let's let's put that behind us that particular channel and let's go forward in a new way with a new process. And, you know, I'm sure you guys talk a lot about process on this podcast and it's not, you know, the most you know sort of interesting thing all the time but it is critical we, to we how We find our, it very interesting. I do too. Nowadays. I'm, I'm kidding, a big right. proselytizer. We had a
1: whole podcast where the question was, what's the most interesting, boring thing you worked on? Yeah. I get a lot of feedback on that. Yeah. I love the, the question about the but, interesting, boring thing. But it's thing. like
2: if you don't have the right process, you don't make the right decisions, right. you know, and it's so critical to the functioning of our democracy. So... You know, is it's it's worth investing in
0: well so one of the things we talked about is this idea of managerial confidence that 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 is the strongest most significant characteristic a manager can have for success and it seems that confidence in this instance would be to take the critique of no less than a thousand of your employees and and use it uh, effectively to open a, a a, a bridge of communications to those employees so that you can build that relationship and so I think that that's really the challenge to the administration uh, now is to say okay wow we we may have um, triggered something there do we just shut it off and so then we'll never hear the dissent and therefore we will we'll feel comfortable that we continue to progress down a, a happy line or do we turn it out on across agencies I think it's a very unique thing you have at the State Department with this dissent channel. And I think it should probably exist in more places.
1: I, I agree, I, I'm really fascinated by it. I think I think federal employees uh, don't always know the right way in which to engage. And I think organizations don't always uh, help create that structure, that permission structure, if you will, for two-way communication. So I think this is something that, uh, that again, a cr- I'm glad it went public from the standpoint of it's another data point and learning point as we try to figure out how to make government work more effectively. In particular, during a transition, which we're all seeing right now, is a very challenging and stressful time for for the government.
0: So, what's your what's your what's your takeaway? What's your what's your advice uh, um, to your average hardworking federal employee about how they can um, stay involved and engaged in, in trying to help set the tone for these agencies.
2: I think, I think communication is so important, right? Like, so you're you're reading a lot in the news, you see different policy decisions being made, et cetera, but it's really I think about figuring out how to communicate effectively to teams up and down uh, the the hierarchy in these agencies. To say either the process isn't working or we have real concerns, this isn't, because people will leave. You know, we're already facing a major demographic challenge the functioning of the federal government, uh, with a lot of the federal workforce being uh, either of retirement age or soon to be. Um, that's real expertise we're going to lose. We don't want to add to that flow. I certainly heard from people anecdotally uh, at the State Department, you know, many, many people who felt like they needed to leave uh, and they couldn't stay. If they felt like they had input and could constructively participate in this process, they'll stay because they believe in what they're doing and they think that their work has impacted. Um, in our foreign policy and national security so i really it's how do we have these conversations The dissent channel is one mechanism but there have to be more ways to for people to to raise concerns or to to offer their um suggestions in ways that can be heard i think that starts from the top i think that starts from from the cabinet secretaries they've got to set that tone uh, and they've got to bring that those perspectives into the white house decision making process
0: so heather higginbottom is our our most senior guest yet, uh, uh, highest ranking guest yet. We could talk to her all day, but we know that she has this incredibly busy schedule she was telling us about earlier. <laughs> it's so. really amazing. Yeah, so <laughs> we, we have to let you get back to it. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Gov Actually on the FedScoop Radio Network. If you want to reach out to us, you can tweet us at, at GovActually, or you can send an email to dan at govactually.com or danny
2: at govactually.com.